uh, you will forgive me um, just a, a personal word at the beginning. For those of you who are visitors um, and uh, you don't know, I'm, my name's David, I'm the minister here. Uh, a number of years ago, I was quite seriously ill, and as I recovered, I was sitting about there, and I was sitting beside two young ladies, and I said to them, are you visitors to the church? I was there with my sticks and so on, and they said, oh no, this is our church, are you a visitor? <laughs> and I said, yes, I'm the minister. Oh, you're the guy we've been praying for. So maybe you've been here for a while, and you hadn't realized I was the minister, that's because I've been uh, in and out of hospital for the past six months. So I'm absolutely thrilled uh, to be here and to be sharing uh, God's word. I went to see the doctor this week and she gave me permission to preach again, um, but she doesn't know the free church. She said, providing it's not too long. So we will see. Now, it, this is a, a delight. Um, can I also say this? Uh, we have a system whereby students who come along, part of a hospitality scheme, and some of you have signed up for that, and four of you were appointed to myself and Annabelle. Uh, I'm not sure who you are, so Callum Reed, Emily Henry, Matthew Amer, and Matthew Greer, if you're here, you're invited for lunch today. Um, so make sure that you make yourself known uh, at the door. And if we find that there are three people calling themselves Matthew Greer, we'll <laughs> realize there's a problem. Um, but one of the things I'm really so delighted about being able to come and share God's word with you is because I know that this word is absolutely relevant to everybody here. Whether you are from Malaysia, or whether you are from Manchester, or uh, whether you're from Broiferi, or whatever, this word is relevant for you. Whether you're married or single, whatever your personal issues, whatever your job, whatever your circumstances, whatever your family, uh, and so on, whatever your sexuality, whatever, God's word is relevant for each one of us. All of us have tremendous need. All of us face confusion and darkness at times. One of the advantages of being ill and not really being able to do much is being able to read a lot. And I like reading anyway, so I've just been reading so much. And I've read this amazing book by a man called Ernst Becker. He won the Pulitzer Prize in the 1960s called The Denial of Death, which is a wonderful book to read when you're ill, isn't it? Um, uh, it's a book about philosophy and psychology and humanity written by a man who was dying and who two months after it was published, he did die. And it's written um, from a perspective looking at Freud and Kierkegaard and Jung and so on. Uh, and those of you who do philosophy and psychology will know what I'm talking about and others of you won't. And some of you will say, well, Freud, what's this got to do with church? Surely Freud was a bad guy. Well, Freud saw a lot of things that were true, and I, I found this book utterly astounding uh, for lots of reasons. One of them is simply this, that one of the things that Freud taught was that the human animal is, is distinguished by being afraid of two things, the fear of life and the fear of death, which given you're either alive or dead, that's, that's, that's all of us. Some people are too scared to live. And people are scared of death. Kierkegaard described it this way. The whole order of things fills me with a sense of anguish. From the gnat to the mysteries of incarnation. All is utterly unintelligible to me. And particularly my own person. 
Great is my sorrow without limits. None knows of it except God in heaven, and he cannot have pity. Particularly my own person. It's really hard to know ourselves, to know our circumstances. Now, Kierkegaard was wrong when he said that God cannot have pity because God does have pity, and that's why he brings us his word. And that's what we're doing here. If you're visiting here, let, let, let me tell you what we're doing. What we do when we look at God's word is it's not telling people a, a bunch of things they already believe to make them feel better about themselves. What this book does, in, in Hebrews it says it, it, the word of God is, is sharper than any double-edged sword. It, it, it cuts right into your very being. It goes right into the dividing line between soul and spirit. It goes to a depth that for us is really, really uncomfortable. For some, there's a gentle peeling away, a prodding, an illumination. And for others, it's like an explosion. But my hope is that um, just when I was in hospital and, and the surgeon operated and cut deep, um, I, my hope is that as we look at God's word, that God will cut you deep but that it will be something that's a healing thing. Now, it may be painful, but it's a healing thing. So we're going to go on to Romans chapter 3 now. Uh, many months ago, we began looking at Romans, and uh, this is a letter, obviously, to people in the city of Rome, a letter to Christians. Paul is writing from Greece, and he's writing to a church where there's division. He's writing into a metropolis where there are all kinds of problems and difficulties. And where we've got to uh, in this is he's basically said, I'm, I'm a messenger of good news. But first of all, you need to understand that God's anger against humanity is being shown and against both the religious and the non-religious. And in chapter three, we read this. And we'll maybe put the words up on the screen, I think. And I'm just going to read the first two verses to start with. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. Now, what happens in Romans and what's happening in this passage, if you can imagine it this way, it's very much like a kind of Q&A where Paul is dealing with some of the objections. He's dealing with real questions that he would have received in the synagogue or as people would come to his house and discuss things. Sometimes I think you'll understand Romans better if you understand it as Paul responding to a heckler. Now, it's not good Presbyterian practice for people to heckle during a service. But I have been in uh, churches where that has occurred, where people didn't know what a good Presbyterian was, and so they just shouted out. Um, some of them have been brilliant. My favorite, all-time favorite ever was a Baptist church in Edinburgh when I was preaching, and this man stood up and shouted out, Ah, you, you're nothing but a Tory. And I was, what? <laughs> I said, we don't discuss politics in here. Sorry. Um, um, uh, and I said, I'm not going to discuss my personal politics. I can assure you I am not. Uh, I was very young, ra red, and radical at that point. And I said, uh, but we'll discuss this afterwards. Certainly woke everybody up anyway. But by the way, if you do have questions, please feel free uh, to ask them. Probably better if you ask them afterwards. But this is what's going on here. Paul is being heckled because what he's teaching is really outrageous and it causes a reaction. And I, I, I want 
this to happen to you as well. I, I don't want you just to sit here and go, oh, yeah, that's really nice, or, oh, yeah, I think that's, that's good. It, it should provoke you to think. It should provoke you to question. God's word is there to challenge us as well as to comfort us. It's to confront us as well as to conform us. And that's what's going on here. There's a basic principle. It's not wrong to question. But where do we come for answers? John Locke, the philosopher, says this. The Bible is one of the greatest blessings bestowed by God on the children of men. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture for its matter. It is all pure. So we come to the word of God. Now, Paul is being faced with a a series of questions, and we're just going to look at those, and I'm going to um, apply them to the context and the culture in which we are in. And it may be that they will cause you to have further questions, but I hope that they will also point you towards Jesus Christ. First question is this. Paul has just said to the Romans that both those who've got the word of God, the Old Testament, the Jews, and those who don't, both need salvation. So the objection immediately comes, well, what's the point of being a Jew? What's the point of being circumcised? And Paul answers that. The question is, what's the point of being brought up in a Jewish home? And I'm going to turn that a little bit and say, what's the point of being brought up in a Christian home? Or what's the point of coming to church even? Let's deal with the Jews first. What Paul teaches seems to go against God's covenant. The Jews would say, we are the covenant people. We have the sign of God. We have circumcision. We have the word of God. And Paul has then said, but Jews need to be saved the same as Gentiles. So what's the point? Is there any advantage? Now, some Christians would immediately go, there's no advantage at all in being a Jew. Everyone's the same. Paul doesn't do that. He says, much in every way. There's great advantage in being a Jew. Why? And he says, first of all, they've been given the very words of God. Now, first of all, you're looking for a second. Uh, you won't get the second until chapter 9. I think he's forgotten about it. He just, he just gets carried away. So he goes, first of all, and then you don't get the second until chapter 9. But they have been given the very words of God. They have a special responsibility. Now, I want to say... As regards the Jewish people today, we have a particular responsibility as Christians. By the way, if you're here, you're visiting and you're Jewish background and that has happened, you are very, very welcome. We owe you so much. And I want to say that we as Christians have a particular responsibility to the Jewish people. The gospel was to the Jew first. And even Paul, the apostle of the Gentiles, saw that. Blaise Pascal, the French Catholic scientist and philosopher, said that one of the greatest proofs of the existence of God is the existence of the Jewish people. The Jewish people have been persecuted and attacked and abused for all their time. And since the New Testament, since Europe became Christianized, the Jewish people have been attacked in Europe. Myself and Annabel were in Berlin and we visited the Jewish museum there, which was fascinating because it wasn't so much about the Holocaust as to how the Jews have been persecuted in every community in Europe throughout history and you'd say well that's not happening today yes it is it is happening today Jewish people in Scotland 
feel that they are being abused and some are leaving. In France, synagogues have to be police protected. The rise of anti-Semitism is going on and we as Christians need to be aware of that and we need to pray about it. And we need to uh, uphold the Jewish people in prayer. They need to know Jesus. But we, we, we do owe them in so many ways. I was astounded to read this week a letter from Prince Charles which has come to light. In which he attacks the Jewish people for causing the trouble in the Middle East. There's something deeply ingrained within European society and within British society. I've met people who are uber left wing and who, oh, well, it's the Jews. And I've met people who are uber right wing who have, well, it's the Jews. And, and we need to recognize that and we need to be aware of that and we need to pray for the Jewish people and we need to uh, uh, pray for all the situations that they will find themselves in. So Paul, in fact, if you get the the record, we look at the Balfour Declaration. There's copies of it at the back there, and there are uh, some different perspectives on that, but I'll I'll just mention that. But there were great advantages in being Jewish, and there are still great advantages today in being Jewish. They've been given the very words of God. Let me just apply this a little bit in terms of the church. What's the advantage of being in the church? What's the advantage of these children growing up in the covenant community today of God's people? Well, we have been given the word of God. Now look at that phrase there. They have been entrusted with the very words of God. Now you may read over that. I want you to understand just how astounding that statement actually is. And I want you to grasp this. That the reason the church in Scotland today is in so much trouble is because in the majority of pulpits today, this morning, people will be standing up who do not believe that. They do not believe that the Bible is the very words of God. They will say, the Bible contains the word of God. The Bible illustrates the word of God. But they don't believe that the Bible is the very words of God. And that's where the church has gone wrong in so many ways. It undermines everything. When Paul says to the Jews, you have an advantage much in every way, you've been given the words of God, he's not saying you have an advantage because you're saved and other people aren't. He's saying you have an advantage, which is a great responsibility. You've been given the very words of God. And that's the same for us in the church. And again, I want to bring it a little bit home and apply it to us here. I think many of you will will say, well, thank goodness we're in a church which believes, as we do, that the Bible, this is the very words of God. I don't care if you believe me. I care if you believe what God says in his word. You say, well, thank the Lord we're not in churches where that is denied. Thank the Lord that we're in a church that takes the Bible seriously. But if you are, there's a responsibility. And let me tell you what the responsibility is. It's to read God's word. It's to value God's word. It's to do as well as hear God's word. It's to pass on God's word. And it's a really serious question. If you belong to this church, if you are a member in this church, if you are an elder in this church, a minister in this church, you have a phenomenal responsibility because you have been given the very words of God and what do you do with it? And I'm afraid that far too many of us take comfort in the fact that we've received the word of God and don't realize the responsibilities that we have with the word of God. So Paul says, There's a great advantage. 
But then comes this next question. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's unfaithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. If the Jews were given God's word, and if we've been given God's word, what about those who've been given God's word who do not have faith? Does that negate God's faithfulness? Now, this is a serious and a real objection. Let me explain it this way. I think of a girl who had a big influence on me when I was a teenager in me becoming a Christian. And about two years after I became a Christian, she renounced her faith. That had a big impact on me, negatively, obviously. Did it nullify my faith? Or let's say you've been brought up in a church where the priest, turns out, has abused children. Man stands up, wears the robes, talks about Jesus, and yet abuses children. What do you think that does to the person who sees and hears that? Or you're brought up in a good sound church where you hear these wonderful sermons from a minister who later on you discover that while he was preaching, he was having an affair with somebody. What a hypocrite. Do you know what we do? And I think this is probably the number one reason, perhaps along with suffering, I find that people say they don't believe in God because of the hypocrisy of Christians. And Paul is dealing with this objection. It's a serious objection. And what he does here is he plays with the words in Greek. He, he, he has a kind of word game. And um, someone's translated it this way, and I think it, it comes across better in this. He said, if some to whom God's promises were entrusted did not respond to them in trust, will their lack of trust destroy God's trustworthiness? Let's say, for example, I'm teaching this. And let's say that I went home and I behaved in a way that was completely the opposite of what God's word says. And you could see me do that. Would that negate God's word? Well, it would certainly cause you to question. And, 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 in, and in a sense, it does kind of negate it. Because if people live the opposite of what they say, that is, has a negative effect. But what Paul is saying here is somewhat different. In fact, he, he, he uses a phrase that he never uses anywhere that's impossible trans, to translate. The King James Version says, God forbid, but God's not mentioned here. So it's not a good translation. The NIV is pathetic in its translation because it says not at all, as though we were having a polite dinner party. What, what Paul says is, never in a million years is God unfaithful. If someone, if God's people are unfaithful, does that mean that God is unfaithful? And he goes, never in a million years. That is absolutely impossible. Why? Because God is always faithful. God is always true. Let God be true and every man a liar. Calvin says this is the axiom of all Christian philosophy. Quote Psalm 51 and verse 4 where David had lied, where David had cheated. And then says, so you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. And what Paul is saying here is supposing every human being were a liar. Supposing every teacher in the church turned out to be a hypocrite. Supposing every single person in this church who said they were a Christian turned out to be false. It wouldn't negate God's word. Let God be true and every man a liar. And what he's saying is God is completely reliable and Christ is the truth. And that's why if you grasp what the gospel is, when a, a Christian whom you love, a Christian whom you admire, a Christian whom you respect lets you down, denies Christ in some way, like Peter denies Christ. 
then although it will hurt you and although it will wound you, because you are looking to Christ and not to them, it doesn't destroy your faith. In fact, it should almost go the opposite way. Why? Because the Bible says that all human beings are sinful. The Bible says that all human beings get things wrong. So when someone does something sinful or gets something wrong, thereby proving what the Bible says, it's a bit daft to turn around and go, well, the Bible can't be true because they did something wrong. No, that's what the Bible says. We need to recognize, I mean, I, I just think we don't want to grasp that. We look for our salvation in other people. Now, I think it's really important to have that surety and that certainty, and I'll tell you why. Have you ever had one of those dreams where you're falling and you never stop falling? It's just, it goes on and on. It's like the whole concept and idea of eternity. It's, you know, I've occasionally had that and it's just, you're, 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 or, or you're sinking and you never stop sinking. And I think that in our lives, and again, I'm sorry, I'm going back to Freud and Jung and the book I've been reading. It says basically all human beings can't face up to reality, so we all project elsewhere. But if we did face up to reality with this human animal that's conscious, you know, your dog and your cat are not worried about the meaning of life. But you are, you are conscious. And the trouble is you're conscious of eternity. We, uh, at, at Jim's funeral, I read from Ecclesiastes 3 because that was his favorite book of the Bible, Ecclesiastes. He, at, both at Logies and at here, he heard it being preached on. And in Ecclesiastes 3, it says that God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what he has done from beginning to end. What a burden God has laid on men. I'm telling you, if you're a Christian, you go, oh yeah, I'm going to be in heaven. I, I'm, I'm, I'm all for eternity. I get it. I'm going, you haven't a clue, you don't get it. Because it's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. And what's terrifying is all the stuff that's going on in the world and all the stuff that goes on in your head and all the stuff that's in your heart. And it's terrifying. And you need a certainty. You need solidity. And that solidity comes from a God who cannot lie. And that's the, the great thing. See, you don't come to the Bible so that the Bible will confirm you where you are. The Bible will make you feel comfortable about your life and about your family and about your job and about your heart and about everything else. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible does what Freud could never do, strips away the layers, strips away the layers, strips away the layers, and it can be distinctly uncomfortable. But rather than having to have the truth within yourself and based upon yourself and the world focused on yourself... You can have the truth based upon Christ. So if God, if Christians are unfaithful, if God's people are unfaithful, does that negate God's faithfulness? No, not at all. Never. Is God unjust? But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? Here's Paul again dealing with his heckler. That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Now, what's happening here? Paul's saying, great advantage in being a Jew. Great advantage in having God's word. People who've got God's word don't live up to it, neglect it, despise it, are hypocrites. Does that nullify God? No, it doesn't. But he now turns to the question uh, of God's justice because he says, 
if our unrighteousness shows the righteousness of God, then why does God still judge us? Roman 1, Romans 1 says that God's judgment is on those who suppress the truth of God. Romans 2, chapter 5 tells us that God's judgment is upon those who have the word of God but don't live up to it. But then the argument goes, well, if that's the case, why would God judge us? Because at the end of the day, he's always going to be shown right. Is God not unjust in judging us? And Paul's answer is very simple. If God were unjust, how could he judge the world? Abraham said, the judge of all the earth will do right. The question itself becomes absurd. And this is where I think so many people go wrong. And this is where some Christians fall into a black hole. And it's a black hole of despair that some of you will recognize because you've been there. And it goes like this. Is God really just? Is God really good? Does God know what's going on? Why did this happen in my life? You know, um, I was reading John Newton. And John Newton tells a story of um, his uh, niece who at 14 years old, her mother had died, her father had died. And so she came to live with Newton and she caught an illness which within a year she died. And Newton wrote this memorial of her, this tract about her. And it's one of the most incredibly moving things I've ever read. And there were other things that happened to this girl that were utterly, utterly astonishing and depressing. You know, she comes to live with her aunt and uncle after both her parents have died, after her cousin has died. And when she gets there, she discovers that she herself is dying. And Newton describes what this 14-year-old girl said and how she dealt with things. And here's the extraordinary thing. If that girl, understandably, had said, well, why is God doing this to me? This, this must show that God is not good or is not real. or is not. Instead, she had the absolute opposite. Because she believed that God was just and good, it sustained her and kept her in the midst of phenomenal sorrow. One time, she was kept alive because she had almost died and the doctor came in and, and she said to her uncle John Newton, why did you do that? I was ready to go. Why did you do that? This is a girl who was very, very scared of death. And Newton said, I've, I, I learned so much about Christ from that girl. And I want to say this to you, that your circumstances may not be as horrendous and as bad as that. But the minute you begin to doubt the goodness and justice of God, you are going to go into a black hole of despair. Because if that is the case, you know what that's like? That's like the child who's grown up in what they perceive to be a loving home and it turns out that their father is evil and wicked and does them a great deal of harm. That's like discovering that the person who you are so close to is the worst person in the world. And that's why the devil always wants to get us to that with our doubts and our fears. He always wants us to project those onto God and to blame God. 
But there are lines within which we think. There are many things I do not understand. There are many things that you ask the Lord, well, Lord, why this? Why that? But you need to have a grasp and an understanding that God is good and God is just. And God is pure and God is love. Is God unjust? Paul says, no, that cannot be. That is not the case. We begin not with our goodness and our justice and our understanding. We begin with God's goodness and justice. And then the last questions. Does God's grace encourage sin? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. Now that's the previous argument developed. Because what's happening is, They're saying, if my sin ultimately brings glory to God, if it ultimately proves that what God said was true in the first place, then why am I condemned for it? Now, again, Paul goes on to chapter 9 before he really answers that. How can I be condemned as a sinner? And in fact, you could even go this far. You could say, why shouldn't I sin more so that God could not get more glory? There are Christians who understand a little bit about the teaching of grace. Grace is that God forgives us. At his expense, we can't earn salvation. But there are Christians, I've come across them here, I, I read it a lot, where people say, do you know this, God has forgiven me, so I can do whatever I want, I can go sin, and it doesn't matter because God will forgive me, Jesus has forgiven all my sins. In fact, I can be really bad, then I'll know God's mercy better. Sometimes you hear someone's testimony and they, they talk about how they, you know, they murdered this person and they attacked that person and they robbed this and so on. And you sit and think, the only thing I ever did was steal a sweetie at Woolworths when I was a kid. And, and you think, oh, maybe I have to be really, really bad to be a Christian. Maybe that shows God's grace even more. Let me tell you this. A testimony that just is as, just as astounding as Um, I don't know, an Auschwitz camp God being converted is the testimony of someone who grew up in a Christian home and from a very young age knew the Lord. That's amazing that God preserved you and kept you. We don't glory in sin, but this is the way the human mind works. It's very twisted. There's an infamous Scottish book by James Hogg, the Ettrick Shepherd, called Confessions of a Justified Sinner. It's a horrible book. It's a brilliant book, but a horrible book where somebody who believes God has predestined them says, okay, in that case, I can go out and kill people and justifies their sin. Well, if God has predestined me, then God's predestined me to do this. And I can do it. And if God has forgiven me, he's forgiven me. There's nothing I can do. And Paul's answer to that kind of comment is, I'm not even going to answer that question because your condemnation is justified. Because there are some questions you don't go into. Because it's not a question. The question condemns itself. And here's why. Evil does not promote the glory of God. We never encourage evil so that good may come. We never do evil. God hates evil. God's eyes are too pure to even look upon evil. So when someone says, I'm going to do evil, and then God gets more glory because of that, they're being blasphemous in the extreme. God's grace never encourages us to sin. In fact, if we grasp God's grace, that is a motivation for us more than anything. 
more than fear of hell, more than fear of punishment. It is a motivation for us to say, I don't want to <coughs> I don't <coughs> I don't want to sin. I can't sin. Or I can, but I don't want to do it because it will hurt my Savior, whom I love more than anything. My sin ultimately brings glory to God. Why am I condemned for it? Paul says, what a stupid question. There are questions that are stupid. What an evil question. God doesn't encourage evil. Now, take all those questions, lump them together, and let me just apply this to us in this way. All of this is seen and worked out in Christ. Christ is the truth. Christ is the righteousness of God. Christ is the revelation of God. He is, as he said, the way, the truth, and the life. And Paul is going to come on to that. He's going to talk about God's righteousness. But there's a challenge here to those of us who are not yet believers. And I put the challenge in this way. What reason do you have for not believing God? Is it... Is it um, Paul earlier on has said it's, it's not that he hasn't revealed himself because you can see that. You make excuses, you suppress it, but it's quite clearly there. Uh, I'm sorry being all philosophical again, but Carl Jung, there's a lovely, in fact, I'm going to post this up um, uh, on my website or something, uh, of Carl Jung in the 1930s. It's just an incredible piece of black and white film where Jung is asked, do you believe in God? Now, Carl Jung is, was Freud's disciple and um, probably the most influential and famous psychologist, psychoanalyst of all. And Jung looks at the camera and he goes, no, no, I don't believe in God. I know there is a God. I know. And you can, the astonishment from that, I, I know, he says, I know there is a God. And that's what Paul says in Romans 1. He says, I know, I, we know that there is and we suppress it. But we have other reasons. Reasons to do with justice. Yes, but God is just. We can't sit in judgment upon God. We have real, genuine questions. And it's not wrong to have those questions. If you don't believe in God, you should ask those questions. But what you must not do is set yourself up as God, as though somehow you could judge God. We sometimes ask questions which are genuine and yet far too often I suspect that there are those of you who ask questions which are excuses. They are excuses for you not having to face up to your own mortality and to your own sin and to the fact that one day you will meet God. So there's a challenge to those of us who are not yet believers and there's a challenge to those of us who are believers. We need to think we need to argue the truth and the reasonableness of the gospel. We need to defend it against lies and misunderstanding because what most people think of as the gospel isn't the gospel. We need to communicate the gospel and take seriously people's objections. We need to think about these things ourselves. I'm sorry, but it's just wrong and lazy for you as a Christian to say, oh, just believe. You should just believe. No, they shouldn't just believe. People have a right to question. They have a right to ask. And we, if we love them, need to take that seriously. But we as Christians need, our concern needs to be with the character of God. And there are two aspects to this. The first is this. Does our life and our lifestyle and our commitment to God and to the Bible adorn the doctrine of the gospel? What do I mean by that? 
I mean, if the only Bible that people will read is us, what Bible are we presenting them with? We need a deeper work of God's Spirit in our life so that people will go, I want what they've got. I had a man say that to me once. He said, David, do you know this? I hate you. That's a common reaction. I hate you. I hate what you teach. I hate it. But when I come to your church, I want what you've got. Can you not have it without Jesus? No, that's why we've got it. It's because of Jesus. There's a challenge to those of us who are believers in that sense. And there's a challenge in this about how we think and what we do. It's God's covenant. It's God's faithfulness to his promise. It's God's justice. Our concern is with the character of God. It's God's glory. It's God's love. Do you know, if you were watching television and someone came on and spoke about your mother as though she were trash, how would you feel? You'd be so hurt. You'd be so wounded. You'd be so upset. When someone speaks about our Savior Jesus Christ on television or in our workplace or anywhere else in a way which is demeaning and degrading and trash, we should, we should be wounded. We should be hurt. We should feel it. Now, that doesn't mean to say we're going to go and hit them. It doesn't mean to say we're going to react in a bad temper, but I'll tell you this. It means that we are concerned with the character of God. Our God is good. Our God is gracious. Our God is faithful. He's faithful. And I want you to hold on to that, that God is faithful. You may not have been faithful. You may be sitting here going, I'm one of those people who has let God down, even in this past week. Well, that's fine if you understand this, that he will never let you down. So what you do is you don't go out and say, I'm going to let God down again because he'll forgive me. You say, "I, you know this? This is what real repentance is. It's an endeavor after new obedience. I'm going out of this building and because God is faithful, I'm going to try and be faithful again. And I probably will fail, but God is faithful. God is faithful. So we go out and we sin no more. We live for him. We love him. And we proclaim him. Becker's book is really a, he doesn't, I don't think he knows this, but it's really an exposition of Hebrews 2 that those who are held all their lives in slavery by their fear of death. There's just a darkness that's in there and it's interesting. Becker says this at one point. He says the thing that Freud got wrong was he thought that our fear of death should lead us to suppress things. Whereas he said, in fact, our fear of death should lead us to faith in God. I thought, what a brilliant insight from a non-Christian. And that's what I want to encourage. I want to encourage those of you who are not Christians to place your faith in God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And those of us who are Christians, I want you to stop listening to the devil. Stop doubting the goodness of God. Stop listening to your own heart. You don't want to go into the depths and darkness of your own heart. Because it's not a pleasant place to be. Instead, look to the beauty and the love and the glory of Jesus Christ. God's not unjust. God is faithful. God is good. And we walk out of this place 
if we have placed our faith and trust in him as those who are justified, as those who are right with God, as those who are renewed, as those who are forgiven, and as those whose lives are in the hand of a faithful God who will never leave us nor forsake us and never, ever let us go. Forgive me one more personal illustration. Um, those of you who've had um, surgery of the type where you, um, you know, anesthetist. If any of you are training to be anesthetist, by the way, you are a really important person. Um, I hadn't realized how important anesthetists were, but you are, you're like mega, mega important. More important than doctors. Well, you are a doctor, but you know what I mean. And, you know, and you're lying on that bed and they come and they put the stuff on your head and they, you know, they, they say, uh, just a wee scratch. That's all the nurses go, you know, wee scratch. Ah! You know, the needle goes in and, and, and all the rest of it. And um, they, they, you, know, you hear them talking. They talk about how much they're going to give you. And this one's got a mind like an elephant. We need to give them more and all that kind of stuff. And so they can take you out of it and everything like that. And you're lying there. And the reason you don't panic as you slip into a coma, why? Because you trust the doctor and you trust the surgeon. You are powerless. There is nothing you can do. They could, they could cut you up and sell your body parts. They could do anything. They're not going to, by the way, but they, just in case you, you panic about it. Um, we haven't got to that stage in our culture yet, but they could do anything. But you go, you say, I don't know if I'm going to come out of this, whatever, but I trust the people who are providing anesthetics, the people who are doing the operation. Let me tell you that that is what Christian faith is. It's not that you know or you understand everything. It's just that you simply say, Lord, my life is in your hands. I give you it. And I tell you this. The psalmist says, when I awake, I shall see joy at your right hand. That's what happens. I'm telling you, you've got a choice. You commit your life to God or you live it on your own terms. You can live in your own darkness or you can live in the light of Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Bless it to us, each one of us. Those of us who are your people and yet find ourselves at times wandering in darkness, help us to stand firmly on the rock that is Jesus. Those of us who don't know you, Lord, help us to find you even as you call to us just now. And be with each one of us that we may go from this place in your strength and comfort, in your name. Amen. We're going to finish by singing the great hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And uh, we'll stand to sing, and after we've sung this, please remain standing for the benediction. I think the word screen. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Let's stand and sing this, and think about the words as we sing them.